the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. We talk a lot about school and education and what is wrong in the classroom. You want to know what's right in the classroom? Stay tuned for my next guest. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Uh, well, welcome to Sideline Sanity. Uh, as those of you that follow the show know, education is a big topic for me. It's very important to me. I'm the daughter of a public school teacher. She is down about public school education, um, and, and so am I. And I, and so I, I'm bringing a teacher on. And he's not just any teacher. He writes for the Daily Wire. His name is Jeremy Adams, Jeremy S. Adams, so that you don't confuse him with other Jeremy Adams. He's the author of Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. And this is, Jeremy, this is just coming out in paperback recently, right? Yep, just came out in paperback about two weeks ago. Uh, and I, I think the message is, is just as important uh, as it was when it came back in hardback a year ago. No question. If anything, I think more people are paying attention to what's going on in schools than ever before. You know, we talk about this a lot. The silver lining of the pandemic was parents' exposure to what's happening in their kids' classrooms. In some ways, it's a good thing. In some ways, people were like, what the? I have a feeling people were pretty happy with you, given that you were a the 2014 California Teacher of the Year, which is a big deal. I mean, California is a huge state. Education has been a, a, a source of pride in California. I wonder what your experience was during the pandemic and what you saw happening to kids along the way. Yeah, that's a, that's a great setup. And, and I guess what I would say mainly is a lot of these problems that we see in our young people today were absolutely positively present way before the pandemic began. Uh, you know, one of the things that I hope people don't misunderstand is I didn't write this book about all the problems that kids are experiencing because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I wrote it mostly before the pandemic, but the pandemic has punctuated, accelerated, and amplified all of these problems that you are seeing now with our young people. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that is, is neat about teaching for as long as I've been teaching, this is, this is now my 25th year, which wow. I had a student who said it was a quarter of a century, which sounds worse to me <laughs> uh, than 25 years. But uh, one of the things that you notice, though, is when there's a sudden pivot in the way they act, the way they behave, their thinking, their belief system, the way they spend their time, uh, most of all, their mental health. My students 
all of a sudden became deeply unhappy. The level of anxiety they deal with, the, even things like suicide and self-harm. When you've been teaching as long as I have, Michelle, you, you notice, you're like, hold on, wait a minute. Something's different. Something's going on here that's qualitatively you know, different than it was just a few years ago. And that's really why I wrote the book is that, you know, we teachers, we're not famous. We don't make a lot of, you know, a ton of money, but we do sometimes see trends in the culture and in the country a little bit faster than other people do. And that's what the book is about. It's kind of me screaming and waving my hand saying, America, you need to understand what's happening to our kids. Well, it's interesting. You're speaking from the perspective of a teacher in California. Over the course of 25 years, how have you seen the relationship between educators and parents evolve? Yeah, well, it, it's definitely changed. And, and to be perfectly blunt with you, um, it, it's not as intimate and strong as it used to be. I mean, we, we have these events uh, probably all over the country called Back to School Night. Yeah. And it's where parents come in and they, you know, they visit the classroom and you talk about your class and the policies, so forth and so on. When I started teaching, Michelle, over two decades ago, my classrooms were packed. They were full. Uh, nowadays, when we have these events, maybe, maybe I have one fourth of the, the, the parents there. And the other thing I would say is to a certain degree, it's become a little bit more adversarial. Uh, when, when you and I were growing up, if you and I screwed up in a classroom, our mom or dad would be like, what did you do? Yeah. Apologize, find the teacher, find the principal, take responsibility for your actions. I will tell you nowadays, the parents will say, well, were other kids doing it? Uh, is this that big of a deal? Uh, is this really something that we need to hold them accountable for? I mean, at the end of the day, and I don't want to like give away the big idea of the book, but we're raising a whole generation of young people who are largely untethered to adult values, adult expectations, adult, um, adult role modeling, and young people spend all day around other young people and they don't absorb those adult expectations. And, and you see that playing out in the way they look at their lives. By the way, Jeremy Adams also writes for the Daily Wire, and I can tell you it's worth the follow. It's worth checking out his stuff. What do you think is behind this this growing, as you described it, adversarial relationship? It's interesting you mentioned back to school night. Just we're we're recording this in September of 2022. My husband and I said, "Oh, hey, back to school night is next week. Do you think we should go?" And we both kind of went, "Eh, no." Yeah. And, and it's it's interesting. It's um. I think it's years ago, it would have been something that we need to go, we need to find out, but we sort of kind of developed this, this perspective. What, what do you think it's about? Well, I think part of it, at least for us, Michelle, is, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to go to my, my son's because he's my third child. So, you know, you kind of get, you get, to the third <laughs> or fourth, you get to the third or fourth kid and you're like, well, I know what this is all about. Yeah. Um, I think part of it, part of it, you know, part of this technology it used to be that if you wanted to talk to the teacher, you know, you kind of had to make a phone call or go see them. Now, you know, they can email you. Uh, they have these, these apps called Remind where they sign up and they can text you. So I think technology plays a little bit of a role for it. But I'll tell you right now, I think our young people suffer from a profound lack of connectivity to, to adults. You know, one of the things in my book that's, you know, when you write a book, you never know what's going to make a stir, what people are going to talk about. Um, and the thing that's really surprised me, though, what's really resonated with so many people is, is the section of the book that talks about the fact that young people really don't eat meals with their families anymore. Mm. Um, you know, almost all of the things in my book I write about are things that I noticed in the classroom. And I, I remember about four or five years ago, I talked about the family dinner and my students get this really weird look on their face. Yeah. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. I said, well, you know, at night, you know, where your mom or your dad make dinner and you sit down and you talk about your day. 
And they're like, Mr. Adams, we don't do that. We, we don't eat with our mom or our dad. I'm like, well, why not? And either it's because they live with one parent who's working a lot. Again, children raising themselves. But the other thing that's really odd to me is just this kind of radical individualism that you see in, in families and in young people where, you know, they'll tell me that they will make their dinner. Their parent will make their dinner. They'll, they'll sit in front of the TV. They'll go to their room and put on their headphones and just kind of, uh, you know, disappear into the abyss of social media. And so those family meals, which are so important, there's so much correlation between uh, kind of having that time with your family where, you, you know, you used to pray together before yeah. every meal. You know, my mother, God rest her soul. Michelle, if I put my elbow on the table, she would take her fork, <laughs> take her fork and stab me, you know? And, and while it was kind of weird, while it was kind of weird. It, it, it did create this kind of paradigm of manners, of right and wrong. I mean, one of the things that I, I think it's crazy that I actually have to say this and that it seems like some kind of revelation to so many people. But guess what, folks? Children need to be raised. They yeah. don't know how to do it. Yeah. Their values have to come from somewhere. You know, and you asked about how schools have changed. And I, I write about this a lot in my book and in the Daily Wire pieces. You know, it used to be understood that if kids didn't get food at home, you provided it at school. If they didn't have counseling at home, you provided it at school. But for some reason, when it comes to behavioral expectations, you know, you're not supposed to cuss in class. Don't have your phone out. Don't litter all over the campus. For some reason, we're supposed to excuse that. Yeah. Um, and yet, I would argue that that's one of the problems you see at, at schools is that the children are running things yeah. sometimes. That we we have cloaked indifference in, in kind of this membrane of compassion. And it's not compassionate. It, you know, we have to hold kids accountable. Otherwise, when they become adults, they think nobody will, will, will hold them to account for their bad behavior. Well, you isn't, see this. isn't that what we're seeing right now across America? We're seeing crime at a at a peak level, and we're seeing those in the legal system saying, "Oh, that's too bad you did that, boy. You must have had a tough life. Go out there and give it another go." You know, and it just it makes no sense. It makes You're no sense. It's um, right. yeah. I think too we've the the cell phone issue, and I think the reason it probably got so much play with with your audience. Is that now this terrifies me? I'll be out at the grocery store or wherever and I see someone pushing a baby carriage and there's a baby sitting in the baby carriage or in the seat looking at a phone. This, I, I did not allow my kids to, to look at a phone till I don't know. They were, I don't, I don't even remember when and it was one of those educational thingies with the, you know, the pencil and the, I, they weren't allowed to touch my phone. And I didn't like it when anyone said, oh, you want to look at my phone? I was like, no, no, no. I'm not saying I did it perfect because I'm sure as you and I are sitting here that I've made a bundle of mistakes. But th that phone then is is where they do get their connections, as you talked about, with people who are grown up. And not always the best connections, are they, Jeremy? No, that, that is such a great point. You know, one of the things that, again, kind of with this long span of my teaching career, and I know that I don't look old enough to be having taught. You don't. Years. I just will say that. You started when you were 12. We understand. I started outside of the womb. Um, <laughs> but one of, one of the things, though, that you do notice is, you know, I teach, you know, government and economics. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty lucky I get to teach the advanced placement and the honor students. And you know what's interesting is the first maybe 15 years of my career, 
when you talk about current events, which I don't really talk about those anymore because they're so touchy. Yeah. Um, when you talk about current events, you know what people used to say, Michelle? They used to say, well, you know, my dad says this. My mom says this. Right. My grandmother says this, right? You could tell that they were talking about these things and they were absorbing kind of the, the politics and the values of their parents. What's interesting nowadays, nobody talks like that. Nobody talks about what their parents think, what their grandparents think. But you know what they do reference? LeBron James. Yeah. They do reference these YouTube celebrities. Yeah. I mean, I want people to understand that that the kind of the relationships that typically socialize us and give us a sense of right and wrong and expectations have been displaced by voices and influences that are absolutely not the kinds of voices and influences that we would want raising our young children. Right. And yet we give them one of these. And by the way, I am so guilty of this. So I'm a total phony for saying this. But <laughs> No pun intended, you being a phony. Yeah, yeah, true, true. But they, they, you know, you are allowing in all of these voices, all of these influences that you have no control over. And, and again, there, there are no words. There's no hyperbole. There is no grand eloquence strong enough for me to explain the pernicious effect these phones have had in our young people. I mean, as a teacher, they can't pay attention to anything. Yeah. Um, one of the most disturbing conversations I've had was last year at the end of the year. Um, I had this one of my best students. At the end of every unit, I'll say, well, you know, because I teach history too. Here are some movies you might want to watch about, you know, this, this, this period. And finally, this female student raised her hand and she said, Mr. Adams, I'm just going to tell you this. We really don't watch movies. I'm like, well, what do you mean don't watch movies? She's like, well, we, we can't pay attention. Like, you know, you, we can't pay attention for, for two and a half hours. You're, you're out of your mind. I saw that Netflix. I don't know if you saw this, Michelle. There was an article about a month ago that Netflix noticed that all these teenage shows were using subtitles. All these teenagers had turned on the subtitles. And they're like, this is awesome. The kids are reading. No. They wanted to look at the scene before they could go back to their phone, and they didn't want to miss anything. That's what's happening. Wow. So, Jeremy, let me ask you, at the school where you teach, can kids have their phones in the classroom? They can. They can. And, and at this point, uh, you know, I mean, there's some schools that are starting to change policies. Yeah. Um, I teach in the Central Valley of California, uh, where it's been, you know, 2,000 degrees uh, the last few days. Um, but, you know, up in I live in Bakersfield, up in Fresno. I know there's a school district that's starting to, you know, have those, pa those pockets that say, off and away all day. I think that's, you know, progress. Yes. But at this point, it's a very decentralized classroom by classroom uh, decision. But, you know, I'll tell you, and this, you know, one of the things I write about in the Daily Wire piece that you re referenced is I do feel like there is a sea change going on, uh, that teachers are fed up. Um, and, and this is, I mean, this is, maybe I'm showing my age here. I was talking to my best friend about this yesterday, that this is one of those things that is just so obvious to an adult and a young person just doesn't understand it where you know you actually have to say to them, you can't be on your phones. You can't have those earbuds in your ears when I'm trying to teach you about the Federalist Papers. <laughs> and they will actually say, Michelle, I'm not making this up. They will say, well, why not? Like, I don't understand. Like, why, why, why can't I, I do both at the same time? And it's like, well, your brain doesn't work that way. I, and, and, you know, the other thing I've noticed, of course, is that, you know, homework that used to take 30 minutes now it takes them two or three hours. Yeah. And they think it's because the homework is hard. It's because they're perpetually, manically, monomaniacally, endlessly distracted yeah. all the time. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I say in the classroom is I am greedy for your attention. You know, I, unless you're invested, unless you're anchored here, what I'm teaching you about the magical melody of America is never going to get through to you. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, I'm teaching a very cynical generation of young people about this country and its history, and they need to listen up.
When we come back from a quick break, you just said something so interesting, the cynical generation, cynical about the country. I want to get into that with you, your take on why that's happening. I think I, I know. And then we'll get into what may be the most important issue of all. And I wonder how we solve it. That's coming up with Jeremy Adams. Ugh. I keep thinking about the pain we're about to go through over the next at least 12 to 18, maybe 24 months with the markets and inflation and gas prices. Even though gas prices have come down a little bit, they're still so high. I'm sure that hasn't got past you. You know, so there's all this short term stuff we have to worry about, how we're spending our dollars. And then there's the long term planning so that you can retire and not have to worry so much. And that's where gold and silver and precious metals comes into play. And there's nobody that I trust more when buying gold and silver than legacy precious metals. See, gold provides a hedge against inflation. It protects against a weakening dollar. And that's why so many investors are turning to gold right now. If you think back to 2008, ah, those of us who remember that crisis, well, people who invested in gold saw huge gains and other people... Well, they just lost their retirements. So I would encourage you now, while you have a chance, to check out Legacy Precious Metals. You can find out how to invest, put it in your 401k, however you'd like to do it. You should give them a call. Just ask them your questions. Grab a pen. Here's the number, 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. Also, you can download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com legacypminvestments.com uh, Jeremy you talk about this being a cynical generation I, I it's so hard to watch it's so hard to watch from my vantage point and this is really one of the reasons I left my job covering the NFL in order to have a voice in this I certainly want my kids to love this country as much as I do faults warts and all when you hear people say that, oh, kids aren't being taught history properly, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I'm a pretty conservative person, but I do think that there is a kind of uh, bad habit that some people have on the right where they think that all of the all of the, the negativity and the cynicism about the country are some, is somehow coming out of the classroom. Well, let me tell you something. You know, that the, the, the Twitter account lives of TikTok. Yeah. It's entertaining. Right. And it's disturbing. But most of us are not really like that. That's not what most public teachers are like. And, and again, but here's a conservative viewpoint, which is that culture is the ultimate arbiter of our value system. And and young people are absorbing these values uh, in places that have nothing to do with the classroom. That's not to say there's not negativity in the classroom sometimes. Um, but I, mean, I would tell you that, you know, Colin Kaepernick has a heck of a lot more influence on people's view of the country. I would tell you that all of these protests, or let me put in quotes, protests, <laughs> in the summer of 2020 have a lot more to do with their view of the country than their U.S. history textbook. Um, and, and so the problem is the way that young people look at, I think, American history is that they believe that the essence of the country 
is found in the worst things that we have ever done. And as you've said, there's plenty of bad stuff in our country. I am a, I am a teach it all guy. Yeah. You know, I don't think you can excuse the things we've done, nor do I would say that that's the essence of what we've right. done. Right. And that's the problem with things like the, the, the 1619 project is they talk about how, you know, that this country, that racism, that our worst things are part of our DNA. Well, the problem with that is you can't change your DNA. And yet, and this is what I would say, the extraordinary thing about America is not what is not our faults. It's the fact that we have agency and freedom to correct yes. those faults. Real patriotism is not blind acceptance and rationalization. Patriotism is a belief in the founding ideals of the country and having this kind of, you know, inspiration and passion for each generation to live up to those ideals. I mean, that's and that's the thing that I, I want people to understand is that this cynicism is dangerous, Michelle, because America, that's what FDR said in 1943, Americanism has never been a matter of race or religion. It's a matter of the heart and the mind. You have to understand the ideals, the principles. Um, it, it, it's what Lincoln called, you know, the proposition of America. And, and if kids don't know what that proposition is, if they don't understand uh, the lyrical idealism of the Declaration of Independence, if it's not taught to them correctly, then what makes an American an American? Yeah. You know, we, we, we used to have this motto, e pluribus unum, out of many we are one. Well, they all get the many. They all get how different we are. But nobody knows what yokes us together and creates one nation anymore. you got to learn that. And I think a lot of things are getting in the way of that. And that's why many of them are so cynical. Uh, it just seems to me that, yeah, the complete history isn't being taught. And I'm not – and there's no time – from the time that the kids in kindergarten to, to they graduate high school to teach every day of history. There's certainly not. You have to pick and choose the events and, and what really shaped things. I get that. But this notion that, I, I mean, I've, I've sat on panels where people have looked at me and said, they don't teach about slavery. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I learned about that in second grade. And I know for a fact my kids are learning about it. So I'm not sure where they're getting these ideas, but this blanket uh, Paul of, of just that we're all racist in, in one way or the other is, is really distracting from, like you said, I mean, you can talk about, I love Booker T. Washington. He is someone I would love to have dinner with. Frederick Douglass would love to have dinner with yeah. because while they were different in their approaches and their points of view, they still believed in what the American ideals stood for. How is that being taught today? Well, I think the problem is that, you know, like you said, we teach about, you know, as we should, uh, kind of the warts and all. But but what's interesting is, so like when you talk about, you know, the, the failures in, in the Philadelphia Convention to deal with, with slavery and enslaved people, you talk about the three-fifths compromise, you talk about these things. Uh, and of course, it, it, you know, you, you, you're very honest about them. But to me, the magic of America is, yes, this is where we started, but we ended with the 14th Amendment. Yeah. We ended with the 13th and the 15th Amendment. Yes, we had Jim Crow. Yes, we had uh, all of these awful, uh, awful things that happened between the 1860s. And yet the real magic of America is, I would argue, what happened in the 1964 Civil Rights mm -hmm. Act. You know, you have the Voting Rights Act. You have... MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail, that that's the real America. And so I think there's this narrative that says that we, the, we are our worst moments as a country. And I think traditionally we've said, well, yes, those are there, but we are actually this idea that we, as a democracy in a free society, we have agency to become anything we've ever wanted to become. And look what's happened. Look what's, what's happened to progress. Um, I mean, as I say to my students, to a certain degree, it's interesting that they're so cynical, Michelle, because 
if you had to pick a time and a place to be born yeah. in the history of humanity, it would be right here, right now. We are the richest, wealthiest, safest, you know, but have extraordinary technology and freedom. Like no people in the history of the world, it was given to us by people and institutions that sacrificed so much. And to look back on it and just say, you should have done better. It's the height of arrogance and ignorance. That is a great point. You should have done better. And, and that being arrogant and ignorant, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that people are willing to apply today's all the things we've acquired in terms of knowledge and principle and change and say, why, why wasn't this done earlier? You know, it's because it wasn't. And now we're here. So congratulations. We're here. Now what's next? We still have stuff to do. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, the, one of your opinion pieces, and I think it's your, maybe your most recent on the daily wire. It's time to admit the most uncomfortable truth about our schools. Cause you have a series at daily wire and I highly recommend this is it's quick reading for those of you who are afraid to read and it's important reading five ideas for fixing American education. It's time to admit the most uncomfortable truth about our schools. I'll let you tell us what is the most uncomfortable truth about our schools. The most uncomfortable truth is that we educators and schools and teachers have a lot less power over the outcome of our children than we want to. Uh, and I, and I, I, I wish that weren't the case. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I teach at uh, kind of an inner city school, a lot of poverty, a lot of broken families, a lot of tragedy. And I think that if kind of the average everyday American were to peer into the life of these children, uh, they would understand a little bit more why schools have to do so much more than just teaching nowadays. Um, I know some people on the right, you know, again, I consider myself to be pretty conservative. I think sometimes we make light of things like social emotional learning. But at, at the end of the day, if, if children don't feel like the, the teacher's on their side, if, if they don't feel like the teacher cares about them, it, it really diminishes their ambition to do well in the class. And, and, and yet you could have the most extraordinary teachers in the world. You could have the most inspiring instructors. And at the end of the day, it, it really is the most, the most impact that we have in the aggregate is maybe 10 to 20 percent uh, on the outcome of a child. Uh, most of the things, you know, we, we talk about inputs and outputs. What we love in this country, Michelle, to talk about the outputs of education. Here's what schools should be doing. Here's what teachers should be doing. But really, most of the most of the things that decide the output are the inputs. And that's things like culture. And most of all, it's family. It's parents. Uh, you know, most of the things that decide the outcome of a child happen before they even get to a school. You know, were they read to as children? Were they talked to? Is there a college going mentality in the home? Are there books in the home? Uh, are there standards that's, that, that, that this young person knows how to behave? Um, are they surrounded by violence? Are they surrounded by drug use? Do they have one parent who's working three jobs and not there to raise them? These are all things that teachers really can't impact. And yet the research is crystal clear that those are the kinds of things that have more of a colossal and titanic uh, power over the lives of our children than, than we teachers. And again, you know, I'm somebody who watched Dead Poets Society way too many times. You know, I, 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 you know, I do believe, you know, I do believe that sometimes a, an extraordinary and powerful teacher can kind of act as a boulder in the life of a child, can kind of show them a, a higher and better way. I, I know that my life was impacted by those teachers. And I really hope that in 25 years of teaching, I hope that there are some students whose trajectory is better because they were in my classroom. But if you're talking about a whole educational system, if you're not willing to talk about home life, if you're not willing to talk about family structure, 
I mean, you and I are probably old enough. We remember Dan Quayle getting maligned for talking about Murphy Brown. Yeah. Uh, and people made, people made fun of him. And yet all of the social science now confirms exactly what he said in the 1990s. Isn't that crazy? I, I'd forgotten about that episode, but it's very true. And, and I'll tell you, just from the experience of covering so many athletes from such diverse backgrounds, from Compton, California, from poverty, from growing up in this segregated South, whatever their issue was, it seems to me that there were so many who found a way to exceed expectations to grow and to learn because it was either a dad, a mom, or a grandmother who said, you're going to school. And before you go out to play, you're doing your homework. And I think of some of these kids from these circumstances who somehow found their way to Stanford or Harvard or whatever school they went to ended up graduating. Or even these players now who find themselves making tons of money in, in a professional sport and say, I promised my mom I'm going back to finish my degree. That changes the trajectory of their own kids' lives. And I see it happen in that way. So it, it, it really, it, it's not like the home needs to be perfect. There just needs to be that expectation of you're going to learn, you're going to go to school, you're going to do your homework, and you're going to do your best. And that comes before everything else. It certainly did uh, with myself and my brother and sisters. It, it was, you can't do anything else until you finish school. Yeah, I mean, that is, that, that's exactly right. And I think that it speaks to, you know, we have this, this term that we use all the time now, Michelle, about privilege. You know, you have this privilege or you have that privilege and you need to own your privilege. And yet we all know that the, the research and it is clear, which is that the ultimate privilege in life is having a good parent privilege. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, I mean, so many of these athletes and entertainers, uh, kind of trace the kind of the genesis of their success. In an adult, an adult voice in their lives saying, this is where you should go. This is right. This is wrong. You are accountable for this. Uh, and that is the ultimate privilege in the world. Um, you know, one of the things that happens almost every year, and I know I'm not alone, and I know any teachers uh, who are high school teachers who are listening to this podcast are going to shake their head when I say this. At the end of every year, I will have one or two students, they'll stay after class, and they'll kind of be looking down and I'll say, what's, what's wrong? And they'll say something to the effect of, you are literally the only adult in my life who cared. And sometimes when you were mad that I didn't do my homework or I got a bad grade, you weren't mad. I know that it's just because you had an expectation that I can do better. Uh, and again, I, I think it's shocking the absolute exodus of adult voices in the lives of young people. And we really have allowed the technology to raise our children. We have allowed the culture to raise our children. And by the way, this is not a, a class issue. I think we've done it across the continuum. And I know that I'm guilty of this as well. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, in, in, in Hollowed Out in the book, I, the ultimate goal is, the ultimate aspiration is that we adults have to start adulting again. You know, stop letting the children be in charge of yeah. things. I, I think, you know, as a parent, as a teacher, we can love these kids, but they're not our buddies. They're not our friends. We need to be their teachers. We, they, they need to have parents. They need to have, I mean, and we're not even talking about things like religion. Yeah. Um, I mean, 30 years ago, you know, most of my students probably either went to church or at least they knew a lot about religion. Nowadays, it's not, and I'm a public school teacher. It's none of my business, what they believe. But what bothers me is how ignorant they are. They don't even know right. anything 
about religion. So that entire cosmos of of right and wrong and adult influences and role models and you know and inspirations that's absent from their lives as well. I mean, you know, people want me to explain the title of the book "Hollowed Out." What it makes sense? Think about all the things that fill in our lives, Michelle: family, friendship, faith, learning, love of country. Um, meaning and purpose, all of these things come from those, that kind of connective tissue. Well, we're raising a generation that doesn't have any of those connections. I mean, you'd be lonely and depressed as well if you didn't have strong friendships. You didn't believe in your country. You didn't believe in God. You didn't talk to your family very often. And you went to school and you were allowed to stay on your phone all day. Yeah. You'd be hollowed out too. Yeah. I do think it's, it should be basic. Hey, phones aren't allowed in the classroom. Period. The end. It's been that way at my kids' school, fortunately, since they since they were teeny, and and I appreciate that. That's one of the, the those things that I think say to the administration that is smart. Thank you. There's no no place for this. And in fact, they've gotten even more strict with if you've got a laptop in the classroom, you are not allowed to have a texting thing on. You know, they just if they distribute any kind of electronics, it's very very limited as to what those electronics can do because you're supposed to be listening to the teacher and and participating in the class. Uh, I get the sense that you've got some very grateful students. You are the kind of teacher that exudes an enthusiasm, a knowledge, a groundedness that is so needed in this country. Um, I, I, I'm so glad you're writing for the Daily Wire. We need to hear from teachers who are principled and who get it. So again, I can't recommend this enough to, for people to check out the book, Hollowed Out. It's in paperback now. You can get it in, in hardback, obviously, but Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. And it is a warning, but I think it's something also we can read and say, you know what? I can make little tweaks in my life, in my neighborhood, in my community, and, and maybe, maybe have an impact. I, we can't, we can't sell ourselves short, right? Because the Greta Thunbergs of the world, as as enthusiastic and as passionate as they may be, they have no life experience, and they are not yet adults. Their brains are not fully formed, Jeremy. <laughs> no, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Let's stop elevating children yes. and saying that they have a moral clarity that we don't oh. understand. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Allow the adults to teach what we know to be right and virtuous and true. It's, it's. How dare you? <laughs> oh, thank you to John Berg, my producer, for dropping that one in. It's just, it'll go on forever. Um, Jeremy Adams, again, follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Adams six. You can check him out on Daily Wire and I highly recommend it because it's good stuff. They're good reminders. And I think this is important that we listen to someone who's with our kids, with kids, all day, every day. In fact, you got to go get to class. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. Likewise. This is Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave, do good, and check out Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. It's in paperback. Well, we always appreciate it when Charles Thorngren can join the join the podcast and talk a little money and gold in particular with us, gold and silver. And Charles, it's these are mad times. I mean, it's just really wacky. And anyone who's watching the stock market is probably asking themselves, what do I do? I don't I don't know. You know, I'm not I don't know how to ride this roller coaster with everyone. 
And so obviously you recommend investing in precious metals. What's the first step that someone should take in learning about what precious metals can do for them? You know, the, the first step, um, give us a call, right? We're, we're going to show you what options there are available. Um, that's what Legacy is about, is showing you options and, and educating everyone. The important thing to know is that we don't invest in gold and silver because it's pretty or because it's it's unique. Those things are true, but we do it because it has the history of being the true diversity for someone's portfolio. It's the insurance policy against everyone's retirement and their uh, their savings. So, so this is why we look at, at gold and silver specifically. It's the currency that was always meant to be, right? It's not a fiat currency. There's no um, inflationary effect on it. Gold and silver are going to be worth what they're worth. The thing that changes with everything is the amount of dollars it takes to buy that gold and silver and the amount of dollars you get for owning that gold and silver. That's the big key. And this is what people don't understand about it typically is that it is not the stock market and it is not the dollar. It's an investment that is counter to both of those. So it gives you true diversity and balance is what everyone's looking for right now. They just don't know it as inflation yeah. gets higher. This is where gold and silver come in. Someone is saying, okay, I, I want to do this, but I want to choose one or the other. When right. they call you and ask you these questions, when would you recommend gold and when would you recommend silver? You know, that's a great question. And what a lot of people wind up doing is actually doing a little of both because that's possible, right? But it's going to depend on your specific investment parameters. And that's one of the things we're going to do that we're, we're different from your typical stockbroker because we're not going to say, this is what all my customers are doing. Because that's not what's important. What's important is what matters to you and your portfolio. When is your retirement coming up? What are you looking to accomplish, right? What are your risks? What are, what are, your, what are your safety features that you need? So there's a lot that goes into it. And what we do here is, is talk with you, right? Our, our big thing is to educate you so that you understand why you're doing it as well as in what form and fashion, because that's important. It is important. And I think, too, that people probably think uh, I'm a small investor. This is not for me. I can't I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to do this at a level that will benefit me to them. You would say what? Um, I don't think you can afford not to. If you have money saved and you're not flush with cash, it's more important than ever for you to make sure that you put yourself in a protective situation. Right. You have less to lose. So you should not lose it. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about how much protection you need. And if you don't have a, a very large portfolio, then you probably need it more than the guy who does because you can't afford that loss. And look at what the market's done over the course of the year. We are talking about a situation where the loss is extravagant and it's not done yet. This is why we look at uh, precious metals to counter that. And lastly, Charles, for those who fear that a recession may already be here or is coming, what do you tell them about how in a recession this investment helps out? Great question. A um, couple answers there. We are in a recession, um, but the reality is it's not going to get bad for a few more months. Then it's really going to be bad. 
What we see happen next year is going to be devastating. Just think 2007, 2008, right? The troubles with 2008 happened in 2007. It just took time for it to hit the market in a real sense. And this is what we see. You know, we have inflationary numbers that rival the 80s. Um, that's something that's going to be dramatic. So when we look at this, we say, why do we want to do it? And, and that's exactly why. It helps because it's not the dollar and it's not the stock market, right? This is the safe haven investment. And if you look at long-term wisdom, that's what metals do. They give you a place to store your wealth without the effects of inflation, right? Inflation is good for your metals. The stock market correcting is good for your metals. Uh, a weak economy is better for your metals. So that's what it's meant to do. And that's why it has its place in the economy. We're talking about a worst case scenario right now, but even under the best of terms, the government tells you two to 3% inflation is a good thing. And at two or 3%, it doesn't sound bad, right? But over the course of your retirement and your lifetime investing, if you go 40 years, you've lost over 120% of value of your dollar by not having metals. So even in the best of times, there should be some in your portfolio. And during the worst, you really want to make sure you get a hold of somebody who can explain why and show you what options you have. Yeah, that's why we love to recommend Legacy Precious Metals on our show, Sideline Sanity. So the website is LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You can also go to the website and find the phone number to call, learn a whole lot more. It's just worth asking some questions, right? A quick phone call and getting more information about everyone's specific situation. Absolutely. We're a no-pressure organization. Everyone who contacts us, they reach out to us. We share information. If it's right for you, great. If it's not, that's great too. Learning something never hurt anybody. No, that is true. And we're <laughs> glad we had you on to learn something from you today, Charles Thorngren. Again, it's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Please go check them out. Just ask some questions. Learn a little something. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 